0: And thanks for listening to Coming-of-Age Stories, the podcast all about growing up. Today's episode, I'm talking about a whole lot of things. There's a few ideas that I touch on that I'd love to dive into more, just all on their own, but the main subject on the table is how children and most humans learn best. Do we thrive with praise or punishment? No prizes for guessing which side I'm probably going to land on, but I'm going to cover the differences between the two, the myths around what it takes to achieve greatness, and why there's no crying in baseball if you like the show why don't you tell someone about it and also make sure to rate and review and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice thank you so much to the people who've rated the show five stars on apple Podcasts. that means so much to me it really does you can also follow the podcast on twitter and instagram at coming of age cast or on facebook as well thanks again for all your support so far i cracked 50 downloads since the last episode which is very exciting and i'm super keen to keep making the show and i will as long as people keep listening let's get into this week's episode shall we Experience of watching a movie where you know that it's brilliant and an incredible piece of art, but you will never ever watch it again. I've had that happen a few times. Brokeback Mountain is extraordinary, but destroyed me emotionally, and I'm not keen to get back to that in a hurry. Psycho is another one, which, by the way, I was made to watch in year 11 at school as part of a horror unit when I was doing media studies. And we were also made to watch Night of the Living Dead, and both those films gave me such hardcore nightmares. And granted, I am a super sensitive person who slept with a light on until I was 18. But still, I'm so cautious of things I show students now. And sometimes I think about that and can't believe how casually those films were shown to us. Anyway, another film I experienced this that I thought was outstanding, but never want to see again is Whiplash. What an amazing film. Stellar, award-winning performance by J.K. Simmons. But good Lord, did this film upset me. If you know me at all, or probably even if you just know me from listening to the podcast and you've seen the film, you can probably guess why I had such a strong response to it. So Whiplash is a movie that came out in 2014, written and directed by Damien Chazelle, whose name I'm probably butchering. He also wrote and directed La La Land. He was only 31 when this movie came out. Side note, it shouldn't be depressing when people around your age are doing amazing things because everyone has their own timeline and everything, but goodness, I had to do a double take when I saw how old he was when he made this movie. Anyway. Whiplash is about a young drummer named Andrew Neiman, played by Miles Teller. He's studying at Schaefer Conservatory in New York and really wants to become a top-class drummer. He gets invited to join the university's most prestigious band, led by Terrence Fletcher, played by J.K. Simmons. And this is the band to be in. This is where you get mentored by the best, you get this experience, and this is where you make it. It's revealed really quickly that Terrence Fletcher, Fletcher is abusive towards his students, The scene that really sticks in my brain is the first rehearsal Andrew has playing in this band and this awful escalation of humiliation that Fletcher inflicts on him. It's burned into my brain. The character's justification in the film is that he pushes his students in this way to be the best and that the greatest geniuses in their field need to be pushed in this way. He references Charlie Parker's famous origin story. Charlie Parker was a jazz saxophonist in the 30s and 40s and the story goes that he was playing in a jam session and messed up an improvisation and the drummer Joe Jones threw a cymbal at him. Parker would later say this was a defining moment, encouraging him to be better. In Whiplash, when Fletcher tells this story, Andrew asks if maybe his rough treatment actually discourages his students and Fletcher says the next Charlie Parker would never be discouraged. The central question at the core of this film is, What actually does make a genius or make someone great? And I know that this film has been the catalyst for arguments among people who would agree with Fletcher's premise that sometimes you need to be pushed and nothing truly innovative or extraordinary would happen without that negative attention. I fundamentally disagree with this idea. As someone who works with young people every day, the thought of playing on their vulnerability makes me sick to my stomach. But I've had this argument with people – And I've seen so many push this narrative of tough love. It was circulating a lot when The Last Dance was coming out, the docuseries about the career of Michael Jordan. This is an incredible TV show, and even if you don't care at all about basketball, I encourage you to watch it because it's genuinely such good storytelling. But something that comes up a lot with Michael Jordan is the high standards he has for himself and the other players around him. He was relentless in his training, and he would berate his teammates when they made mistakes. It's a facet of his personality that the show grapples with, as pretty much everyone admits that he was basically an asshole to everyone. And he justified this treatment in a similar way with the fact that, well, they won all the time. If he wasn't hard on them, nothing would be pushing them to be better. This is the way that people thrive. This is the way we achieve greatness. This is the way we be the best. And there's this acceptance of behaviour like Jordan's. Not only due to the idea that it's a good way to teach, but also the different standards we have for those who we kind of see as superhuman in their abilities. When the show was coming out, I saw a tweet that said, imagine how much Michael Jordan could have achieved if he was nice to anyone ever. And there were so many responses that seemed to say the reason he was so good is because he was unkind. It's not a new thing that people at the top of their fields get kind of a hall pass when it comes to their behaviour, and it's dismissed as a side effect of being a genius. Think of how geniuses are often portrayed and talked about, that the stereotype is often a recluse or antisocial at best and openly hostile at worst. But there seems to be some level of greatness that excuses bad behaviour. Think of the film directors you hear stories about who are awful to their casts, all in the name of their art, or men like Roman Polanski or Woody Allen who have people coming to their defense pretty much purely because, well, they make great films. Do we really want to sacrifice that? Even the tendency for people to say, I never liked their work, after someone gets outed as it being a terrible person seems to imply, what, that if you did, that would somehow be different? The question that Whiplash and the story of Michael Jordan, as well as countless others like it, ask, what environment brings out the best in us? What allows us to learn new school skills or improve or innovate in interesting ways? And ultimately, what are we willing to sacrifice to achieve so-called greatness? A lot of people believe in this tough love or pressure cooker type scenario, the idea that humans thrive under pressure and negative circumstances, that hardship and suffering is what leads to beautiful poetry and scientific discovery and great success. I completely disagree that this is true, but my belief is also that even if it was, the impact on our well-being and mental health doesn't make it worth it. Let's take a step back for a second because these are some big and complex questions and I want to talk about how people learn. When I use the term learning, I'm talking about the process that all human beings go through when they acquire a new skill or piece of knowledge or behavior or attitude. We start learning the second that we're born and we do it pretty much our entire lives. We are constantly learning. We learn which foods we enjoy or what our views are on gun control or what happens when you touch a hot stove or what people we get along with. The most intense period of learning we go through is in our very early years, but we never stop. And there are all kinds of learning that occur, and psychologists have been studying all of these since they learned about the concept. I'm not going to get into it all now, I want to discuss a particular kind of learning that that most people have a basic understanding of, and that's operant conditioning. Edward Thorndike and B.F. Skinner were some of the early theorists in this area, who basically discovered that animals and humans tend to repeat behaviour that we enjoy, or reward us in some way, and avoid doing things that we find unpleasant. This seems fairly obvious, but for this to be observed and noted was groundbreaking and it gave us the language for talking about learning. These men, along with others like John Watson, were considered behaviourists, a school of thought that says everything we do as human beings is a product of our environment. Basically, that we make very little choice about what we say and do, but we behave in a way that we've been conditioned to. We repeat behaviour that's been rewarded in some way and we avoid behaviour that ends up with unpleasant side effects. These men, particularly B.F. Skinner, took this belief to the extreme, going as far to say that free will doesn't exist. We think we're making choices, but we're merely doing what we've been programmed to do. This is an example of a big problem I actually have with a lot of psychology, in that in order to make human behaviour fit theories and rules, it often oversimplifies our incredibly complex minds and will refuse to take into account what we do when we do things for any number of reasons. We don't always repeat things that reward us, and we often do do things that we know are going to be unpleasant, and there's any number of choices we make that might lead to that behaviour. Nevertheless, the work of these behaviourists, and all of the subsequent studies supporting them since, do say something really important about the way we learn and respond to teaching. Think about the learning we do in those very early years. We learn not to touch something hot after we get burned, or told off when we try. We learn to walk because it gets us where we want to go faster and because our guardians get excited when we do it. These processes seem to be universal amongst everyone, and while pretty much everyone could easily see what's happening there, there's nuance to the concepts that aren't always understood. Terms like conditioning, positive reinforcement, and punishment are used pretty commonly and are part of the public lexicon, but aren't always used correctly, and I don't think people always know what they mean. So here's a bit of a psychology lesson for you. The term reinforcement means any stimulus or experience that is pleasant or makes you more likely to repeat a behaviour. That's what reinforcing a behaviour is. It's saying, hey, do this again. This might be a treat for a dog once it sits, or a medal when you win a race, or praise for cleaning your room. Absolutely anything that the person finds pleasing can be reinforcement. It might even be a sense of self-satisfaction. And it's going to be different for everyone. That's positive reinforcement, when something pleasant is given to you to make you want to repeat that behaviour. See, the word positive in positive reinforcement, though, doesn't actually mean good. It means an addition. So the way people refer to negative reinforcement as something bad isn't actually correct. Positive and negative reinforcement aren't opposites of each other. They are very similar processes. Negative reinforcement is also a stimulus or an experience that makes you want to do the thing again. The word negative refers to the process of taking something unpleasant away. For example, that annoying beeping in your car that doesn't stop until you put your seatbelt on. That's negative reinforcement. It makes you more likely to repeat the behaviour and put your seatbelt on. Or say you spill something on your favourite shirt and then use a stain remover to get it out and it works. You've learned to use that stain remover again using negative reinforcement because it's taken away an unpleasant thing, having your clothes ruined. What people often refer to as negative reinforcement is actually punishment. Punishment is a stimulus or experience that makes you less likely to repeat a behaviour. It's an unpleasant stimulus that we do not like and do not want to happen to us. This can also be positive or negative, as in adding or taking away. A positive punishment would be the addition of something we don't like, so when we touch a hot stove and get burnt, we're getting the addition of physical pain, which makes us less likely to do it again. Or we eat something and it gives us food poisoning, we're probably going to avoid that meal for a while. And in a more deliberate, active process, it's when a learner gets punished for doing the wrong thing. Michael Jordan's teammates getting berated when they aren't doing what he wants, and Fletcher humiliating Andrew in Whiplash when he's not drumming at the right tempo. And then negative punishment is the act of taking something desirable away, a child having their phone confiscated after they fail a test or getting removed from a game after they do something inappropriate. Both punishment and reinforcement are learning processes that are innate within us. In the most simplistic of terms, we want to do things that are nice and avoid things that are horrible. Of course, as I said, human beings are far more complicated than this. But generally speaking, this is how we learn behaviour, whether this is where we're being overtly taught a skill like drumming or basketball, or of how we learn what's acceptable socially, those unwritten rules of society. And both of these processes work. When we get rewarded, we generally continue that behaviour, and when we get punished, we usually stop. Now, there's a lot of nuances to operant conditioning I won't get into now, save that for another episode, but those are the basic principles. So what's the problem with using humiliation or yelling in order to get rid of unwanted behaviour? Isn't that going to ultimately get rid of bad habits and encourage you to do the good and right thing? The answer is, sort of. Here's the thing about punishment. Yeah, it works. But usually only in the short term. You know how if you catch a dog peeing inside you can tell them off, but if you discover it later there's no point in getting them in trouble because they won't associate the getting in trouble with the action? We're not all that different. Yeah, we can make the logical connection between the action and the consequence, but not in a way that creates meaningful, long-lasting change. In the moment when a child is misbehaving, punishment works. They're mishandling a toy, you take it away. They're acting inappropriately, immediately get sent to the corner. That puts a stop to the behaviour in the moment, which is what you want. But it doesn't have any sort of long-lasting effect and even has some undesirable side effects. Because when you punish a behaviour in a person there's a few things you haven't done. They might've learned what behavior was wrong, but haven't learned what behavior is correct. That's why reinforcement works better because it directly addresses what you want to see more of. Another thing punishment doesn't do is address the underlying cause. Most people aren't walking around deliberately trying to do the wrong thing. External behavior is always an indication of our internal world. So if a child is misbehaving, we need to address why. Are they in need of attention, reassurance? Are they dealing with a trauma? We might get compliance right then and there from from yelling or sending them to their room, but whatever the child is actually needing doesn't get addressed. And this is what often leads to the other side effects of punishment. In the long term, the real lessons of punishment are not what we want. B.F. Skinner identified these in his work on operant conditioning and said, A person who has been punished is not less inclined to behave in a given way. At best, he learns how to avoid the punishment. Punishment doesn't encourage people to be better. It doesn't help us learn to achieve greatness. Instead, we learn to fear the person giving the punishment. We learn to be sneakier to avoid the punishment. And not only that, children who are often punished have been found to struggle with forming positive relationships, do worse in school, and show more aggression themselves. And I've seen this in my work. A student says something rude, and I raise my voice and tell them off. They raise their back, they get defensive, they arc up, the situation escalates, and the trust and rapport between us breaks down. This is opposed to a student saying something rude and me getting alongside them, asking them what's going on, and when they do something right, piling on the praise. Way more effective. It's harder to do, though, and goes against some of our instincts to just shut things down with force and fear. And look, there's times when punishment is appropriate, but I think they're rare and are not always going to have the effect that you think they do. So I just don't buy this concept of tough love. I don't mean that you shouldn't sometimes be direct about expectations or or let hurtful or destructive behavior go unchecked, but the idea that a person does their best when they're trying to avoid humiliation and abuse, and sometimes those conditions are not only fine, but necessary, it makes me sick to my stomach. It really does. Because to me, even if that statement is true, and all the evidence suggests that it's not, even if the only way for someone great to do their great thing is under aggressive conditions, the cost that has on our humanity cannot possibly justify it. Not even the Bulls' six championships. Something I've heard from a few of my students, who are usually, no, always male, is that we'd be so much more advanced as a society if we didn't have to care about ethical guidelines or people's feelings. Yeah, this comes up a lot. Their evidence for this is usually the world wars and all the amazing scientific discoveries that were made during this time. At the expense of many people's lives or mental health, but where would we be without it? It makes my skin crawl. Because honestly, we have no way of knowing that. Can we definitively prove that we wouldn't have more innovation if throughout the 20th century, humankind had banded together for the greater good as opposed to fighting global conflicts? I just don't buy the idea that there wouldn't be innovation and advancement under those circumstances. When human beings are are designed to thrive when we feel safe and supported. That motivates almost all of our behaviour. It's how we're wired. It's in our biological makeup. But this idea isn't limited to teenage boys who have a weird fascination with World War II and the Nazis. I think of the teachers I've known who believe they shouldn't smile until Easter so their students will know who's in charge from the get-go. I think of the fact that corporal punishment is still legal in Australia. In an ABC News article that outlines these laws, it says In New South Wales, for example, the permissibility of parental corporal punishment is stated in the Crimes Amendment to be conditional not only upon it being reasonable, but also upon it not being inflicted on the child's head or neck, and on the harm it inflicts not lasting for more than a short period. It's so vague which is absurd when you're talking about the legality of hitting a child. And people believe this is necessary to produce the desired behaviour. And it just isn't. It doesn't work and causes serious damage. Now let's come back to that myth of the tortured genius, that great great art or achievement is worth the sacrifice of a little humanity, of a little kindness. It would be remiss of me not to point out the gendered nature of this. The stories I've mentioned, even if some of them are fictional, centre around men and boys. I think that the kind of behaviour I've talked about would be less likely with women and girls and also not as justified. We know the stories of high-profile male directors in Hollywood being absolutely vile to their cast and crew and continuing to have careers, but women being very quickly labelled as difficult and losing jobs if they push even a little. I think there's a lot of complex reasons for all this. And some of it has to come down to the lack of normalisation of emotional reasoning and understanding of relational needs among men. Many boys are not raised in an environment where talking about their feelings is comfortable and they learn only by this cold, detached and hard method. To embrace a more nurturing, supportive approach means more vulnerability and breaking of a cycle you've been a part of. I can't help but think of another film now, A League of Their Own, the absolute masterpiece about the early women's baseball league in the US. One of the most iconic lines from the film is Tom Hanks as Jimmy Dugan yelling, there's no crying in baseball. Let's talk about the context with which that line is said. The character of Evelyn makes a mistake during a game and Jimmy yells at her about it. Being yelled at is awful and she begins to cry. Jimmy is surprised and appalled saying, Rogers Hornsby was my manager and he called me a talking pile of pig shit and that was when my parents drove all the way down from Michigan to see me play the game. And did I cry? No, because there's no crying in baseball. Here's the thing. The conclusion to that comes at the end of the film where Evelyn makes the same mistake in their final game and Jimmy makes a concerted effort to calmly correct her and say it's something they've got to work on. He doesn't yell. She doesn't cry. It's good. Evelyn doesn't learn there's no crying in baseball. Jimmy learns that making someone cry is not the most effective way to teach and train. Oh, League of Their Own was directed by a woman. Interesting. It might seem like I'm jumping around a bit here, that... A college musician getting yelled at by his conductor is not the same as a parent smacking a child and different from Michael Jordan being hard on his teammates and different to David o. Russell calling Lily Tomlin a bitch, among other things, on the set of I Heart Huckabees. But what I'm talking about in all of these scenarios is teaching. How do we help people be their best? And how can that answer ever be through fear, abuse and violence? Something I will always keep coming back to on this podcast is the vulnerability of children and how every action and word we use with them has a magnitude of psychological consequences we often can't even fathom or reckon with. But this is not just about children. I think of all the coaches and bosses and directors out there who can justify the use of unkindness in the name of what they're trying to achieve. Who would argue that we wouldn't have this film or this championship or the man on the moon without being pushed? I disagree. I disagree. And the evidence agrees with me. But I'll say again that if the only way we can get a Michael Jordan is by sacrificing our ability to be kind and loving and supportive, I don't think that's a fair trade. Because those qualities are cast aside for too many reasons. For the greater good, for the economy, for convenience. It's harder to be kind, compassionate, supportive, understanding, restorative. It's easier to say sit down and shut up. It feels powerful to make someone tremble and cry. It feels apt to demand compliance in the face of defiance. It seems logical that we go further when pushed. But that push should not be partnered with do it or else. Instead, we push a little, but we say, I got you. I got you. Thanks for listening. Be kind and keep growing up.